Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path. I've kind of let time get away with me. It's been almost a month since I've done anything on the study of Revelation. I've been recording some uh, sermons that I've been preaching. Our pastors had surgery, so I've had a couple of opportunities to preach in our church. So uh, I hope that's held you over a little while. But uh, today I wanted to get back into... Uh, our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're in chapter 3. We're starting chapter 3, which is uh, in the middle of our study of the letters to the seven churches. This will be the uh, letter to the church of Sardis. And uh, as we mentioned before, uh, as, as the letters go on, uh, each of the letters represents a time period in the church age. And as time goes on, uh, things get worse. Uh, contrary to what some people think, that things get better, uh, things are getting worse. And this letter to uh, the Church of Sardis here represents our time period of about 15 to 700 A.D. And uh, the church at Sardis, uh, each one's had like a title with it. Uh, Let's see, the church at Ephesus was the uh, Love Lost Church. Uh, the church at Smyrna was the Lambasted Church. Uh, the church at Thyatira was a Lax Church. And here we reach uh, the church in Sardis, and this letter could be called, uh, or the church could be called a lethargic church, a dead church. Uh, there's nothing more frustrating, uh, nothing more uh sad i guess you would say than than a church that's just dead and in the time and the age that we live in uh there are plenty of them around uh e each one of these uh letters do represent a church from thyatira on that are churches that that are still around and there are many dead churches uh they may look alive on the outside uh they may look like they're flourishing they may have a lot of uh Membership is high, and a lot of visitors. Uh, they may have events going on left and right, but but at the heart of it, and and that's what what God is interested in, how the condition of their soul, and the the dead part of it represents the soul, the spirituality of the church. So, uh, as we get into it, let's just read this letter. Uh, verses one through six represents this letter to the church at Sardis. And then we'll get into this study. Of course, we'll do the same thing. We'll do a lot of the history in Sardis and then get to the actual letter and, and break it down itself. Okay. All right. Verse one of Revelation chapter three. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And once again we see that uh, phrase at the end, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And that's repeated at the end of each of these letters. And, and that tells us that this is a constant reminder that although this represents this style of church and, and this time frame of 15 to 1700 AD uh, and, and the gen general view of churches of that day, uh, it, it, it's, it's still good for all ages. Uh, so uh, we'll remember that. All right, so uh, the history of Sardis. Um, it was founded as early as 1200 BC at the beginning of the Lydian Empire. Uh, Sardis was the capital city of the Lydian Empire until around 549 BC when Cyrus the Great took the city. Of course, Cyrus the Great was the emperor of the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, it's located about 35 miles south of Thyatira and 65 miles northeast of Smyrna. And if you'll remember, we were talking before, I think I mentioned it early on, you may forget it, uh, but each of these seven churches are almost in a circular pattern or almost in the shape of a seven, pretty much. It, it's kind of going around, uh, and, and as each letter hits each church, it kind of goes around in, a, uh, in an order. It doesn't just hop and skip. They go kind of in an area. Uh, the city was considered an oriental city, and was hostile to the cities of the Greek world. The name Sardis in a, is a plural Greek name, as there were actually two towns uh, that were actually named Sardis, but the name means Prince of Joy, and the first city was on a very high and narrow uh, plateau. And I'm looking uh, right now, you can look it up, you can Google it and find it. I'm sure there are uh, several different copies, but I'm looking at a map of the layout of the city, and... Uh, a view of uh, the pathway to the Acropolis of Sardis. And it was in a high uh, location, uh, which most of these cities were either placed in, a, in, in an area where they could be fortified very well. So one of the most uh, generic things you would certainly look for is an area set up on a hill. Uh, it's just a military uh, tactical position to be on the high ground. Uh, it's easier to defend and harder to take from high ground. So uh, that's pretty much why it's always pretty much on a high place. Okay, uh, it was located about 1,500 feet high on a spur of Mount Tomolus facing north. Mount Tomolus is spelled T-M-O-L-U-S. And I've got a picture here uh, that I downloaded from... Uh, looks like somebody went on a tour of the area because some of them are some personal shots there in the uh, pictures. But you can see uh, it is a very high mountain. I live in North Carolina, so we have a lot of mountains around here. One of the most famous in our area, of course, is Grandfather Mountain. Another famous one is Pilot Mountain, which if you don't know anything about Pilot Mountain, you can see it from pretty far away. And it's a little mountain per se. Uh, it kind of generally grows up to it, but there's a peak part of Pilot Mountain that's it's rounded off. 
uh, the, the sides of it are round and, and it's kind of, I wouldn't say donut shape and that the sides are rounded off like that. They kind of straight up and down, but it's like the, uh, an upside down cooking pot, if you will, on top of this mountain. That's what Pilot Mountain looks like. And, uh, part, part of this area kind of reminds me of that, but you can tell, uh, part of this area is walled up. Uh, you can see the rocks were placed there. They're man-made in that they are, but the elevation is, is of course, just, uh, uh, man, uh, nature, if you will. Okay, uh, the only access to the town was across a narrow steep ridge which met the spur where Sardis was located. Uh, Sir William Ramsey, in, in his expedition this area, he wrote about it, and he said, and I quote, it was actually inaccessible except at one point, the neck of land on the south, which still offers the only approach. On all other sides, the rock walls were smooth, nearly perpendicular, and absolutely unscalable. It is a tedious and difficult climb at the present day when the hillsides are overgrown with thorns and only a sheep track exists in place of a path. Even when the summit was inhabited, and a carefully made road led up to the southern gates, the approach must have been long and steep by a winding road which could be defended with perfect ease. So like we said before, a lot of these towns were put in areas where they could defend themselves um, to an advantage as best they could do. And it looks like Sardis was put in a perfect place in, in that it was very hard to get to it and, and very hard to access and very easy to defend. Uh, as the small town grew larger than the plateau could hold, the town spread to the valley floor beneath, and the second city was in this valley uh, known as the Hermas River Valley. Uh, this lower section was located on the west and north sides of the mount, and it was built on the banks of the River Pactolus, P-A-C-T-O-L-U-S, which flows north and joins the Hermas River. Uh, this river became the source of the legendary wealth of Sardis as veins of gold ran through its waters, creating an abundant and continual source of immense wealth. And that just kind of is self-explanatory in the fact that, uh, you know, gold is valuable today and it always has been. And it's always been something that man has sought after. Uh, so <laughs> that makes sense that gold would have been a very good natural resource, plentiful and it was very valuable, so the city done very well on its own. Uh, King Croesus. Uh, there are only three accounts of this king in secular history that we know of. Uh, there was the conversation with Salon. That's S-O-L-O-N. And uh, in reference to that, uh, I'm going to read a... a a statement about it, but then there, there's a biblical reference also. Uh, but the, the reference to it is the Greek sage Salon visits the city of Sardis and meets Croesus, King Croesus, who shows him all his wealth. Uh, Croesus, arrogant in his position, uh, asks the sage who the happiest man in the world is. Salon explains that three have been happier than Croesus, uh, a man by the name of Tellus, T-E-L-L-U-S, who died fighting for his country and his brothers, uh, Cleobus and Byton, uh, who died peacefully in their sleep when their mother prayed for their perfect happiness after they showed respect for their mother and pulled her to a festival 
in an ox cart. Salon goes on to explain that a man's happiness cannot truly be measured until after his death by stating his famous quote, call no man happy until he is dead. <laughs> so <laughs> that's one account. Uh, Isaiah 39 is where we're going to turn and read about this. Uh, it's a similar story. It kind of fits along with this conversation with Salon. S-O-L-O-N. Isaiah 39, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and it says, At this time, Merodic Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard that he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them and showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. For uh, he said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Um, now I can tell you that Probably one of my favorite characters in the Bible is this King Hezekiah. Uh, he does have ups and he does has, have downs. And this is probably one of those down areas where we see in verse 1 uh, that he was sick. And the king of uh, Babylon at that time sent him what you could call the very first Hallmark card. <laughs> uh, they sent him a card and some presents. And Hezekiah is so impressed by this that he invites him to his kingdom. And uh, Isaiah, down here in verse 3, shows up and sees these strange men. And he's asking Hezekiah, well, who are these people? And Hezekiah's like, oh, man, they come all the way from Babylon just to see me. And Isaiah cautiously is like, you know, well, what did you show them? And Hezekiah doesn't hesitate. He's like, well, I showed them everything I have. Now, it would be easy to understand how, you know, if you're sick and someone... Uh, send you a get well card and they decide to come and visit you. And, and, you know, it's, it's a, uh, not a tradition, but I guess a custom maybe that you kind of show them around your house. Oh, this is the kitchen. This is the living room. These are the bedrooms. <laughs> Some people were like that. And Hezekiah is not different from that. Uh, but in reference to the fact that here is a king and, there is a certain type of guard that you have to have against the treasures. Now, you wouldn't invite someone into your house, per se. Uh, let's say you have some valuables. Uh, you may have guns in the house. You may have 
gold. You may have expensive jewelry in the house. I mean, you don't leave them laying out. You lock them up uh, if you're smart. And of course, if you lock them up, that means you have a safe with a combination on it. If you invite some friends over and show them the house, uh, there there is a a barrier, a borderline that you don't cross. Uh, you wouldn't show them where the safe is. And you certainly, if you even showed them where the safe is, if it's visible, if it's not hidden away or that sort of thing, you certainly wouldn't tell them the combination, right? Uh, that's just common sense. Well, in, F, in essence, what Hezekiah has done here by showing them every single thing, he's showed them where the safe is. He's not only showed them where the safe is, but he showed them the combination and he showed them what's in the safe. And, and that's a very dangerous precedent. So that, that's kind of a cross-reference of the story of what we're seeing here with this King Croesus, uh, of what Hezekiah did. Uh, King Croesus is a very proud man. And so this conversation with Salon, it kind of puts him in this place. Uh, the second story we have of him is the death of his son, Attis, A-T-Y-S, Attis. Uh, Croesus had granted refuge to a Phrygian prince named Adrastus, A-D-R-A-S-T-U-S, who exiled himself after accidentally killing his brother. Uh, Croesus later has a dream that shows his son being killed by an iron spearhead. Croesus thus bans his son from military battles and fighting of any kind. Uh, soon after this, a wild boar started tormenting a local town called Mysia, M-Y-S-I-A, or Mysia, maybe. Could be Mysia. Uh, the citizens begged Croesus to send his son to kill the boar. Confident that there would be no enemy to confront, Croesus sent his son, Attis, to kill the boar. And as an added precaution, he sent Adrastus along to protect him as well. However, while fighting the boar, Adrastus accidentally hit Attis with his spear, of course, with the iron tip, killing him. Although Croesus forgave Adrastus for the death, he later committed suicide. Uh, Adrastus did. Um, the third thing, uh, account that we have of this king is his campaign against the Persians. Uh, Croesus was in the position of being the last defense of the Ionian cities against the growing Persian Empire across the Halys River. H-A-L-Y-S River. Halys River. Halys River, but I think it's Halys. Uh, to gain perspective and insight, he sought the advice of the Delphic Oracle, whose cryptic answer was, if you cross the river Halys, uh, you will destroy a great empire. The oracle also advised him to ally himself with the most powerful uh, of the Greek states. He formed an allegiance with Sparta, Amasis II of Egypt, and Nabonidus uh, of Babylon, or Babylonia. Uh, Croesus launched his attack in 547 BC. Now, uh, there is actually a map that I have that shows uh, this battle plan uh, where the Medo-Persians came from Ecbatana and uh, Sardis and the allied group left there and they met at the place of the battle. And uh, there is a map. It's, a, it's on the Royal Road uh, north of uh, Cappadocia. Um, I don't really have a better way of telling you where it is other than that. Uh, it's south of where the Black Sea is. Uh, maybe about... Uh, Hmm, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 miles, something like that. I don't have a scale on this map. Oh, yes, I do. Uh, 
well, about 100 miles, about 100 miles south of the uh, edge of the Black Sea. So that's where they met to have this battle, okay? Okay, now in this battle, uh, Cyrus the Great uh, meets Croatius and their allied army at the banks of the Halish River, and they fought to a stalemate. Now, it was common practice for armies to disband during the winter, uh, so Croatius returned confidently to his fortress at Sardis. However, Cyrus had no intention of letting Croatius off so easily and followed him back to Sardis and laid, laid siege on the city. After 14 days, Cyrus offered a reward to anyone who could find a way up to and inside the fortress. It is said that a Mardian soldier by the name of uh, Hieroides <laughs> I guess that is, uh, I'll spell it for you, H-Y-E-R-O-E-A-D-E-S. Hieroweeds witnessed a Sardian soldier drop his helmet over the side of the battlement, then crawl over and down the precipice to retrieve it, and then climb back over the battlement. Uh, Hieroides, the soldier, concluded that the rock must have a crack in it. That night, he led a band of Persian soldiers up through the crack that they found to the top uh, where they crossed over the battlement completely unguarded. The Sardians had complete trust in their vaulted position and ended up falling that very same night. Um, now, in this battle, uh, we mentioned that uh, in the wintertime, they would draw away. Most of these battles would, of course, take place when it was warmer weather. Uh, you know, I guess the tempers would flare during the winter, and then they would come out in the, in the summer and fight. So, um, Basically, Croatius made the mistake of thinking, well, it's winter time, so obviously we're going to draw back and go home and come back and figure this thing out. Well, Cyrus was smart enough to figure it out, well, if we fought to a stalemate, obviously he respected the uh, capacity of the enemy, so therefore he knew they would, they would have to have some kind of surprise or edge, so they followed him back to Sardis and attacked him there. Now, due to this battle, uh, Croatia's wife, uh, Critias, C-R-I-T-I-A-S, uh, committed suicide to keep from becoming a trophy. And then Croatius himself was killed. Uh, Cyrus took over $600 million worth of treasure from the city. Now, I don't know if that is a value based on today's value or if it was recorded during that time, and that's what the value was, but still, I mean, $600 million, that's quite a treasure trove to take no matter what day it is. Uh, William Barclay, in his commentary on this uh, letter to Sardis, he says, or on the history of Sardis, says, and I quote, there were a few futile attempts at rebellion, but Cyrus followed a deliberate policy. He forbade any Sardian to possess a weapon of war. He ordered them to wear tunics and buskins, that is, actor's boots, instead of sandals. He ordered them to teach their sons lyre playing, which a lyre, if you don't know what that is, is sort of like a guitar. It's a stringed instrument. Uh, he ordered them to teach their sons lyre playing, the song and the dance, and retail trading. Sardis had become flabby already, but the last vestige of spirit was banished from its people, and it became a citizen, a city of degeneration, unquote. So, 
they basically fell asleep. Um, they so trusted in the barricades and their high position that they just uh, disrespected, I guess. Not really disrespected, but but they didn't value the freedom that they had. And listen, that that it opens up a door into the current events of of what's going on in America. Um, it you you know there there's two major political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. And uh, I certainly want to be honest and, and sincere and, and nice when I say this, but uh, these two powers uh, used to work. I, you know, they've always had differences of opinion. I, you know, everybody does. Uh, but they used to work together. The, the government of the United States was run by men who respected and honored each other, uh, and, and at least from the very beginning, they they trusted in God. I, I mean, that there is no doubt. Uh, people will argue it um, just solely on what they believe, but evidence is there in historical records that this is a Christian nation. Uh, there's no other way for it. It's not a freedom nation. It's not a re republic of free thinkers. It is a Christian nation. It was founded on Christian principles. Uh, the name of God is in almost every state uh, charter. Um, I mean, it's there. But but still, what happened at Sardis uh, is happening today. Um, the, the history, you know, the phrase history repeats itself. Well, we're seeing that um, the the two parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, have uh, probably since I would say, in my humble opinion, since the days of the presidency of Bill Clinton, uh, drawn farther and farther away from each other. I mean, there there used to be terms such as moderate. Democrats and liberal Republicans, and that is no more. Uh, they they are so far away from each other that that there is not just different thinking; there is opposite thinking, uh, and it's it's become uh, a thing. Uh, for example, uh, uh, abortion. Uh, a true Republican is dead set against abortion. And they base that off of what God says in the Bible. You know, killing children is is not right. I, it's just not right. And and the argument for many of them that support abortion says that well, an unborn child is not really a human life. It it is growing, uh, you know, and it has life. And there's evidence in the Bible even before John the Baptist was born, six months before he was born. Uh, when Mary told Martha that she was pregnant with Jesus, it said that John the Baptist kicked in. I mean, he responded. Uh, but I, I'm not going to sit here and debate all that. I'm just kind of giving you the facts as I see them. Um, but, I mean, it even goes deeper than that. I mean, the the respect and the authority of our police force. Are, are there bad cops in the world? Well, of course there are. They're human, just like we are. We make mistakes, so how can we think that Policemen aren't going to make mistakes, but that doesn't mean we throw them all in one basket 
and just abolish them. There has to be law and there has to be order. It, 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 we, uh, uh, no place can survive without it. And this fact of banishing these police forces is not the answer. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, look, look at some of these cities that are still being protested today and, and a chaos and anarchy is reigning. There is no order. So without the law, you certainly can't have the order. I mean, they're not going to behave. They're acting like little children. I mean, that's just the way it is. But as it is, Sardis went through the same thing. And, and it happened because we did not teach our children the values that were instilled upon us that our, that our parents taught us. And, and each generation, it's getting worse and worse. And that's not just happening in America. That's worldwide, I'm sure. Uh with each generation, there there's less respect, there's there's less honor, uh, there's less dignity, and 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 it's been happening since the history of man began. It's just the way it is, uh, and and it's all because of the presence of sin. That that's what it all boils down to. It, it's not the individual; it's it's the presence of sin. All right, uh, so <laughs> I've jumped on that a little bit. Let's get back to where we're at. Okay, so. Uh, Cyrus the Great conquers the city, <clears throat> and of course, his, uh, Croesus' wife commits suicide, and then King Croesus himself was killed. Now, once conquered, uh, Cyrus made the city of Sardis the end of the royal road, the end of the royal road, which was a major road system that started in the Persian capital city of Susa, which is mentioned in Daniel. He mentions this city of Susa. Uh, that road was a 1,677 a, a miles long. So that was a long road. Um, I, I have some estimates here how long that would be, but it's basically uh, where I live in the state of North Carolina, one of the big biggest cities here, one of the largest, uh, is Greensboro. But south of that is Asheboro, which is the capital, which I'm not too far away from Asheboro. Uh, but if you go, if you traveled from Asheboro, North Carolina, westward, uh, you would reach Billings, Montana in about 1,647 miles. So that's very close to, it's about within 30 miles of how long this road is. Uh, if you go to Albuquerque, New Mexico, that's 1,511 miles. So that's not quite as far. Um, all the way to Salt Lake City, Utah is 1,769 miles. So that's a little bit further. So from here to Billings, Montana is within 30 miles of how far uh, this road stretched from the capital of Susa all the way to the city of Sardis. So that's a long road. And I'm sure, uh, being a royal road, uh, they uh, partook in the upkeep of it and that sort of thing. And I'm sure their road crews worked a lot better than <laughs> some of the evidence we have, some of the roads we have here. Uh, but anyway, uh, mounted couriers could make this distance in seven days. Mounted meaning, of course, they were riding horses. So there you have the uh, one of the first evidences of the Pony Express that we talk about in, in the uh, history of the Western United States. <clears throat> um, walking people could make this journey in nine days. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus, uh, no, Herodotus, sorry, Herodotus wrote, and I quote, there is nothing in the world that travels faster than these Persian couriers. <laughs> uh, unquote. Herodotus's, uh, Herodotus's praise for these messengers, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night 
stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds was inscribed on the James Farley Post Office in New York and is sometimes thought of as the United States Postal Service Creed. So that whole statement, if you've heard that, of course I've heard it uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, so the person that actually said that was this fellow by the name of Herodotus. Maybe not in exact phraseology, but that's where the idea came from. Uh, now, Persian rule to Alexander the Great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Sardis lived in obscurity under Persian rule for nearly 200 years. Well, that kind of goes obviously in the fact of how they would, uh, the, the king of Persia uh, taught them to train their kids to be <laughs> uh, passive, if you will. Uh, in 334 BC, the city surrendered to Alexander the Great. The once great oriental city became a city of Grecian culture. After the death of Alexander the Great, the city found itself in the middle of a territorial fight involving Pergamos, Antiochus, and Achaeus. Achaeus, a rival of Antiochus, sought refuge in Sardis. For a year, Antiochus besieged him as he hid in the fortress. Now, it's obvious from this that Sardis still had some value as a fortress. Uh, of course, just the genealogy, or genealogy listed, uh, the geology alone, that it was a high rock mount and it was hard to get to, certainly helped that. But listen to this. I, we've talked about this. History repeats itself. So here Antiochus besieged him uh, in this fortress for a year. Then a soldier named Legorus found out the same thing that Hieroides, <laughs> I cannot say this guy's name, Hieroides found out earlier. A band of soldiers during the night scaled the crevice-filled rock cliffs, crawled over the same battlements, and again found no guard there. Sardis had fallen victim to an enemy the exact same way for the second time. They still did not learn their lesson. Amazing. Okay, so we move on up to Roman rule. Uh, the city fell under Roman rule, but continued to grow wealthier, obviously from the gold that ran in the river below. Uh, in AD 17, or 17 AD, a disaster struck when an earthquake leveled the entire city. Uh, the Roman emperor Tiberius, to show his kindness, remitted all tribute for five years and donated roughly... $15.5 million for reconstruction. Well, obviously that wasn't dollars, but, you know, in, in equal value. Uh, after Constantine became emperor, he renamed the city of Byzantium as Constantinople in 324 BC and made it the capital of the Eastern Empire. A new road system thus concentrated on connecting all provinces to Constantinople and Sardis became a side stop along the way, striking in, uh, shrinking into oblivion by the 14th century. So basically when Constantine took over and he renamed the great city of Byzantium as uh, Constantinople after himself, uh, this city of Sardis became a, uh, a city along the way. It wasn't the end of this royal road, so it became a sidestep. Um, if you know anything of the history of Route 66 through the United States, it used to be the main highway, um, east and west, if I'm if I'm 
if I remember that correctly. Uh, but with the interstate system, uh, this Route 66 became a side road, a back road, if you will. And many of the cities along that way became ghost towns because there weren't these travelers stopping in along the way. Uh, a very, very famous Disney movie by the name of Cars uh, is set up in in a, a city along this Route 66. If you pay attention in that movie, you'll see, you'll see that the uh, city where uh, Tater lives, the the uh, uh, wrecking truck, wrecker truck, is in this city, and and that's and it kind of explains what happened. Um, it just became a ghost town after the main highway came about. I, I think it actually explains it in the beginning of the movie there, uh, part of it. So, uh, around the 14th century, of course, this city became uh, pretty much non-existent. Uh, along the way, uh, let's see, from uh, during the 2nd century AD, uh, Melito was the pastor of the church, and it is thought that he was the angel that is spoken of in Revelation 3.1 as the pastor. He wrote an apology for the Christians, which were sent to Emperor Antonius Verus. And I don't know what the history of the apology was or what that meant, but uh, anyway, he wrote it. Uh, maybe we'll get into it as we get into this actual letter to the church. Uh, in the third century, a church, quote unquote, is mentioned in historical records. We don't know where it is, uh, but there is a church mentioned there. In the 4th century, the church is mentioned in the Council of Nice, N-I-C-E, Nice, Italy. In the 5th century, it is recognized as the Metropolitan Church of the Lydians in the Synod of Chalcedon. In the 6th century, the bishop of this church is referenced in the 5th Synod at Constantinople. Uh, the 7th century, uh, Marinus, M-A-R-I-N-U-S, the bishop of Sardis, or the pastor, uh, assisted at the 6th Synod at Constantinople. In the 8th century, uh, Euthymius, the Bishop of Sardis, was present at the symbol, symbol, the Synod of Nicene. Is that right? Nicene? Nicene? N-I-C-E-N-E. N-I-C-E-N-E. Nicene. <laughs> Whatever that is. Uh, city in Italy, pretty sure. Ninth century, the Bishop of Sardis is mentioned, but not by name. So I'm saying this as uh, you can see how they just grew weaker in stature as it just went along over time till it just became nothing. Now, as far as the economics of the city, uh, from very early on, uh, Sardis was considered a very wealthy city due to several factor, factors. Oh, well, one we've already mentioned was the fact that the gold that um, they were able to get out of this uh, river that flew by, uh, flowed by. But basically, it uh, falls into three areas. First of all, its position. Uh, the location of Sardis placed it centrally between the eastern and western markets, allowing it to be a place of trade. Uh, the region also boasted carefully cultivated fertile lands, which would have been that valley area down below. Uh, the second reason for its wealth was, of course, the Pactolus River. This river continuously flowed gold down from the mountains. Greek legend even claims that the basin of this river was made of golden sand. Uh, so that just kind of gives you an idea of just how much gold they were taking out of it. And apparently it never dried up. I don't know if it's still flowing today. You might want to go there and see if you can pan for gold. I know there's TV 
channels about these people looking for gold all over the place and wonder if they know about this. <laughs> uh, the third, of course, is uh, production. Uh, and this would have been, first of all, in the making of coins. Uh, Croesus issued the first true gold coins that used a standard measure of purity for general circulation. The first coins, minted by King uh, Phaedon, P-H-E-I-D-O-N, King Phaedon, around 700 B.C., had a rough shape uh, and were made of electrum, uh, which is a naturally made pale yellow alloy of gold and silver mixed. And I actually have a picture of this uh, coin. And it is a round shape. It's got symbols on it. Um, looks like a bird and a fish. Uh, some other things on it. It's hard to make out, but, you know, round shape. Uh, later on, King Croesus coins were made of gold purified by heating with common salt to remove the silver. So apparently the first coins, uh, the gold and silver weren't mixed together. They just naturally came out that way. And that's where uh, Electrum was. But Croesus refined these. And uh, I've got a picture of the coins uh, minted by King Phaedon and then one by King Croesus. And you can tell a little bit of the difference in the color where uh, the King Phaedon, the Electrum coins... They're still yellow, uh, but it's a, of a brighter color. The one for King Croesus has a, a darker, richer color to it, if you will. <clears throat> now, when uh, Cyrus defeated Croesia, uh, Persia adopted gold as the main metal for their coins as well. So they took to that idea. Uh, the second thing under the production that made Sardis a wealthy city was the production of wool. It is believed that the art of dyeing wool was invented here at Sardis. So if you wear clothes made of wool that are dyed a different color, um, that idea may have originated with Sardis, the city of Sardis. Okay, um, the culture. Moving on to the culture. Uh, the first thing we can talk about in their culture is the fact of uh, they were not any different than some of these other places that they had these temples dedicated to these gods that they worship. <clears throat> the first one being the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis. And that goes by another name, uh, which is Cybele. If I'm pronouncing that right, it's... Uh, um, trying to get all my slides here in order. I'm going through all these pictures. I have a bunch of pictures for uh, that represent this Sardis here. Ah, there we go. Nope, that's not it. The temple, there we go. Wow, okay, that's a pretty big structure. The Temple of Artemis. <clears throat> uh, constru construction began around 334 B.C. Uh, when the city was liberated from Alexander the Great. The original design was called uh, Dipteros, D-I-P-T-E-R-O-S which means two rows of columns around an enclosed intersection. So you basically have your structure in the middle, and then there's an area around the outside that has dual columns all the way around it. And, and I'm sure that because of the size and immense proportions of some of these things, that it would take uh, double-lined columns to hold the roof up 
was basically what it was. Uh, now, the size. Uh, the temple was 327 feet long, 163 feet wide, and had 78 ionic columns. Each were 58 feet high. Two of these columns today are still standing. So you, I don't know if it's whole columns, but they're still standing. You can see part of them today uh, to see how tall they were. Now, imagine that, 58 feet tall. This was a huge structure. This was a massive building. Uh, the unusual thing, though, about this temple was the entrance was on the west side, not the east side, due to landslides from the Acropolis on the eastern side. So to protect the temple, they put the doorway on the opposite side of where everybody else's was. It always faced east, but here in uh, Sardis, the temple faced west, the entrance on the west side. Now, <clears throat> just outside the entrance was an altar uh, of Artemis. It was much older than the temple, dated around the 6th century B.C. And that kind of goes uh, to general understanding. Uh, of course, there would have been an altar built first, and then later the temple. <clears throat> um, the Hellenistic Age. Uh, the Hellenistic Age is a period in history defined as the time between the death of Alexander the Great and the rise of Roman domination. Now, during this time, Greek culture was dominant throughout the area, thus the name Hellenistic, which is derived from the Greek word Hellas, H-E-L-L-A-S, which means Greece. <clears throat> um, the construction of this temple of Cybele during this time uh, stopped and it was probably due to a decline in interest of this particular goddess. During this period, Zeus was integrated into the temple. And of course, that was Greek influence, obviously, because Zeus was the number one god in Greece, uh, not Cybele. And, and I'll get into it a little bit later. Uh, I know we didn't cover who that is, this Cybele or Artemis. <clears throat> uh, but the worship of Cybele originated from uh, Nimrod in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. You can read about that, but uh, it became a Babylonian god. And of course, when Cyrus took over, that led to the, the worship of Cybelus and Artemis. But then when the Greek, Greeks come in, of course, then that switched over to uh, Zeus. Uh, construction resumed on the temple around 175 B.C., but was abruptly stopped again before completion. Uh, the temple was then damaged by the earthquake in 17 A.D. Now, during the Roman era, around 150 A.D., Sardis was given the prestigious title of Neokoros, Neokoros, N-E-O-K-O-R-O-S, which means temple warden. Now, this status required the city to have a temple dedicated to the imperial family, the Roman emperor's family. Uh, the temple of Artemis was basically divided in half. One side was for Artemis and the empress Faustina, and the other half for Zeus and emperor Antonius Pius, who reigned from 86 to 161 AD. So they just kind of divided and conquered in that asset. Instead of just building a whole new temple, they just split it right down the middle, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> the Lydian tombs, 
We're going to talk about that a little bit. The Lydian tombs. If you want to look up a picture of that, that's L-Y-D-I-A-N, Lydian tombs. Uh, they're located in a place called Bintepe, B-I-N-T-E-P-E, -E, two different words, Bintepe, which, which is where they are today. Okay, that's the name of it today. Uh, and th these are basically considered the royal cemetery. Th this is basically considered the royal cemetery of Sardis. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I've got actually a picture of the inside of one of these tombs, but basically uh, this cave site, uh, again, remember this is a, a city located up on a mountainous uh, tip, if you will. Uh, and then when it got larger, they moved down into the valley. But on the side of these uh, mountains, they carved out areas uh, for these tombs. And I know what you're probably thinking. It's not rounded off holes like what you would think of large enough just to put a body in. Uh, the fronts were carved out to, uh, to include like columns and, and pictures of a building, if you will, or, or look like a building. Uh, so, you know, these were great monuments to some of their uh, royal members of the family. <clears throat> now, Bentepe is about six and a half miles northwest of Sardis on the southern bank of Lake Marmara, uh, called Gaijayan Lake in earlier history. But let's just say it's Lake Marmara for what we're talking about. Uh, the area is 28 and a half square miles and is the largest cemetery in Turkey today. About 115 actual tumuli are still there, tumuli being tombs. Uh, the largest single tumuli is that of King Aliatus, A-L-Y-A-T-T-E-S, who reigned from 610 to 560 B.C. And this will give you an idea of what I mean by some of these tombs. Uh, now, his measures 1,164 feet long and is 207 feet high. And, of course, obviously, it's one of the largest tumuli in the world. Uh, the entire burial chamber is made of marble. And I've got a picture on the inside of it. Uh, it it's basically on the inside. It looks like an A-frame building. It's, it's to a point, kind of like the top of a triangle. Uh, there's intricate artwork on the inside. It's painted, all that. I mean, they really did it up nice, if you will. Uh, there are two other tumuli the size of King Atlas's, but they are or Aliatus, however you say that, but they are unidentified as of today. So obviously somebody uh, probably in earlier times or maybe later times were trying to match the size or, you know, make it bigger. Uh, but we don't know who they belong to. But they're of equal proportion, equal size. So that's interesting. Okay, the uh, gymnasium. And I'm not, of course, talking about the high school gymnasium. I'm talking about the Roman-style gymnasium. Uh, it was located to the north-northeast of the city. It shares a courtyard with the synagogue. Uh, it had its own water supply, which basically was made of terracotta pipes, channeled, uh, which channeled water from Mount Tmolus, T-M-O-L-U-S, down the north and west slopes of the Acropolis into saddling tanks. From the tanks, it is believed the pipes carried the water to overhead storage tanks, uh, then were connected to pipe. Uh, okay, they were connected to pipes that ran, ran underground 
through the complex from the south to the north side. So uh, kind of get an idea of what it is. If, if you live in America, uh, you see these towns that have these water towers. And basically what happens is it's a, a water collection site uh, and then water's shipped to, or, or I guess you'd say carried by pipes, to individual houses from this general storage area. And that's what this was. The terracotta pipes is like a clay pipe. Uh, and, and the water would travel through these terracotta pipes into this tank, the storage tank. And then from this tank, the, the water was sent to these gymnasiums through that. Now, the pipes uh, were, uh, and I only have the meter size, so I don't really, I don't know the meter equivalent to the inches, but uh, the pipes were uh, eight-tenths of a meter to uh, 0.35 meters big. And, and if I don't have, if I think this right, I think a meter is equal to about three feet. I think that's right. Something close to three feet. So if you take 0.8, uh, that's a pretty good size pipe. <laughs> okay. Most plumbing that we use today uh, in the, in the city uh, for main water pipelines, I believe are four inches. I may be wrong on that, but I think that's right. Most plastic is used for water pipes, and four inches is about as big as you get. So uh, these pipes were, uh, if I take that right, I think they were big, bigger than that. I don't know. But anyway, that's how big they were, 0.8 meters to 0.35 meters. Uh, the pipes were connected with stone junction boxes or extremely hard caulking grout located around, or which connected them together. The main lines ran nor uh, south to north with branch lines going east and west. Some lead pipes were even found under the frigidarium section. Now, okay, obviously, in English, refrigerator, it came from that. It's the cold area. The frigidarium section was the cold section, all right? So you've got that. Uh, but think about that. I mean, here we are. We're talking in the B.C. area. Uh, they were laying these pipes. And they didn't follow, if you will, the layout of the land where the pipes would be all, you know, squiggly like the basically a, a creek runs or a river runs. Uh, they, they were in a straight line. They run north, south to north. And then you had branches that come off east and west. And, and most cities uh, <clears throat> can't obviously follow it tooth and nail, but most cities are laid out with streets running north and south, east and west. And it comes from this concept, and, and it's just general order, and uh, it looks nice. Okay, now, a typical day at one of these so-called gyms. Uh, the visitors entered the complex by way of the what is called the Peliastra, which is the courtyard, and would enter in, uh, the two-story marble courtyard. Now, this marble courtyard was 117 feet long by 60 and a half feet wide. Everyone would undress in the lounges located adjacent to the apoditerium, A-P-O-D-Y-T-E-R-I-U-M. Exercise and or games would then be conducted in the courtyard. Next, the announcement of the opening of the hot baths would be sounded by the ringing of the Roman wind chime called a tintinabulum, <laughs> T-I-N-T-I-N-N-A-B-U-L-U-M. <laughs> okay, the Roman wind chime. 
Uh, today, uh, 10-10 abulum is a bell mounted on a pole placed in a Roman Catholic basilica to signify the church's link with the Pope. The 10-10 abulum consists of a small gold bell within a gold frame crowned with the papal tiara and keys of heaven. And we'll get into all of that a little bit later, too, we explain all of what that is. Everyone would make their way through the apoditarium and enter the north or south bath block on each side of the tepidarium. These rooms were used for social or ceremonial gatherings before proceeding into the cavernous western halls. When ready, the visitors would enter the western halls, which were hot, steamy rooms heated by a hypocaust system, an underground heating system. Uh, next, they would step into the uh, caldarium, which would be the hottest and most humid room, like a steam bath. Uh, this room was used to open the pores all the way for extreme cleansing. The caldarium, or caldarium was 127 feet wide, 85 and a half feet deep, and 59 feet high. From the caldarium, bathers would make their way to the bath block, where the tepidarium pool, which was 69 feet long and 58 and a half feet wide, uh, was located. This pool was very warm water, used to cleanse the body and wash out the pores, which were opened up by the caldarium. Next, the bathers would enter the frigidarium, which contained a large swimming pool and small basins and pools inside niches in the wall or niches in the wall, if you will. <clears throat> the pool itself was 133 feet long, 29 feet wide, and 4 feet deep. The room was called the Frigidarium because it was very cold water. It is believed that the water was funneled directly from Mount Timolus directly into the pool and flowed continuously through the drainage system to keep the water very cold. This process closed the pores of the skin back up. From this point, bathers would make their way into the lounges alongside the apoditarium on each side to receive a massage complete with ointments and perfumes. Okay, so we've been about an hour through this, so I'm going to stop, as I can only record for one hour at a time, and then we'll pick back up because, again, there is so much to the history of this city. So, um, I thank you for listening so far to this, and... Um, uh, we'll continue next time, but again, uh, thank you for listening. I'm sorry. I do apologize that it's taken me so long to get back to this. Uh, I've just had a lot going on, plus some other things, but, so it was just kind of hard to get back to it, but hopefully we'll uh, continue and we'll have a couple more podcasts put up for you to listen to uh, within the next few days, okay? Uh, so God bless you. Uh, thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye.